Yes and amen. The Lord is worthy, isn't he? Worthy to be praised, worthy to be trusted, worthy to be feared. He deserves our all. And it's not just the songs that we bring with us today. We want to also bring our full attention and bring an open heart and bring an open mind to hear from God's word so that he may speak to us and reveal himself more fully to us and shape us into the people that he wants us to be. I want to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 7. I want to echo what um, Carrie said earlier and just thank everyone who came out yesterday. We had a, uh, an amazing turnout for the work day at the new church building. Many of you know that on Thursday we closed and now we have keys and we are owners of a church building, which is really exciting. And hopefully in a few short weeks we won't be meeting here anymore, we'll be meeting there. Uh, but thank you to everyone who came out. I was blown away um, at how many people came and worked and worked really hard and how much got done. And we had a great time of fellowship, um, eating there together. It was awesome, and I'm looking forward to more of that. Um, and, and that just got me even more excited to worship with you all today and to be together. We've served together. Now we get to worship together and to learn together and to engage God in his word. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the chance to be together, to worship you, and to study your word. Lord, we, we know and we realize that our view of you needs to expand. We need to see you more clearly and more fully for who you are. And you've given us um, your mighty works in history and the recording of those works in scripture so that we would know that you are the Lord. So God, do your work in us today and speak to us. We pray that your spirit would be alive and active, that you would speak through me and do what it is that you desire to do in your people for your glory. Be glorified today, Lord, in your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a student of history, um, which some of you are, I know you like to read about history, and some of you even teach history. Um, if you're a student of history, you'll know that there are different battles throughout history that have turned the tide of war and even altered the course of history. Battles that have changed everything. The Greek Battle of Troy, the Siege of Orleans and the Hundred Years' War. There's the Battle of Yorktown um, in the U.S. War for Independence, Napoleon's Battle of Waterloo, Gettysburg, Normandy, Midway, and more. There's a lot of battles that have changed everything. But if we think about these battles, um, arguably a more important battle than all of those put together is the battle we find here in Exodus, the battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. There's a contest of power that we find here in these plagues, and the result of this battle is not only the emancipation of nearly two million people, the result of this battle is truly the birth of a nation, and it's a paradigm for salvation and the preeminent act of self-revelation by God to his people. I mean, in the, old, in the entire Old Testament, it is this event, this exodus, including these plagues, to which people look to realize this is who God is. This is what God is like. And this act of self-revelation is only eclipsed by the incarnation of God the Son in the New Testament. That's the only thing that is more clear and powerful than what happens here in Exodus. So if, if you remember last week, the way in for this fight, this battle between God and the gods, the way in has already happened. Aaron performed the sign of the serpent. He cast his staff to the ground. But Pharaoh believes that the power of Egypt and her gods is actually more than a match for this so-called God Yahweh. And even though his magician's staffs are swallowed up by Aaron's when they try to imitate the miracle, Pharaoh refuses to obey the command of God. He refuses to let the people go. And so the battle begins. God, as promised, will, be, will have to change Pharaoh's mind by force. So God's judgment falls on Egypt really in three cycles of three plagues. And each cycle grows in severity. And these, this group of nine plagues is followed by a tenth and final one, the death of the firstborn. And we're going to treat that separately this week, I want to focus on these first nine. And what I'd like to do today, as we attempt to cover a large portion of Scripture, is sort of give you an overview of these nine plagues. We'll walk through plagues one through nine. And then at the end, I'd like to draw out three key principles from this epic story. So if you're a note taker, 
Uh, we'll walk through these first nine plagues, and then I'll give you these three principles at the end. As I mentioned, these plagues come really in three waves, three cycles of three. And we can see this from the parallel structure in the plagues. And there's sort of an increase in severity at each juncture. Round one, if you want to call it that, is the, the plague of blood, frogs, and gnats. Those are the first three. The first plague is that the Nile River turns to blood. We find this in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. What happens here is God instructs Moses uh, to go to Pharaoh early in the morning as Pharaoh went out to the Nile River. And Moses was to announce the mighty work that God was going to do, to tell him exactly what was going to happen. And then he would stretch out his staff over the Nile and turn the water to blood. And what this did was it caused, as you can imagine, all the fish to die. Everything started to stink. And the people were forced to dig for water near the banks because they had no clean water to drink. Verse 24 tells us this. And even the water that was in storage is affected. So it's not just the water in the Nile. The scripture tells us here in the text, verse 19, that um, even the water that is in um, the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone is changed to blood. So this is no red tide. This is not just red dirt like you have in Oklahoma that happened to wash into the water and give the illusion of blood. This is a supernatural public miracle. No longer is God just showing his power. In the throne room of Pharaoh, you know, you have the staffs being thrown down and it's just the officials there watching. No, this is something the whole nation is aware of. It's public. It's on display for all to see. And this plague, changing the Nile into blood, like the rest of the plagues, is a blatant attack on the gods of Egypt. You see, these people worshipped the Nile River. It made their life sustainable in a land that was dry, a place that was arid. And so they believed that this river itself was sacred. They worshipped the god Osiris, who was associated with the annual flooding of the Nile River, which brought life and irrigation to their crops. The god Hopi was the god of the marshes and the fish of the Nile. He was portrayed as a figure that was both male and female representing the Nile's power to give and to nourish and sustain life. They worshipped a sacred crocodile god. They worshipped a god named Subek. They worshipped a dead king named Eunice who is associated with the Nile. They had a large temple near Old Cairo where the Pharaoh himself would go annually before the flooding of the Nile and offer worship and tribute on behalf of the nation to these deities. It's very likely that the fact that Moses goes out to meet Pharaoh early in the morning as he goes out to the Nile River. It's very likely that he was going out there to worship, to express their dependence upon and their devotion to these deities. And then what happens? God shows up, and he shows that he is sovereign over the Nile, that he has the power to wreck their source of life and prosperity as a nation. The great Nile River is under the thumb of the Almighty God. It is God who controls and determines whether or not life is sustainable. And this point was proven to all of their senses. They could see it as the water reflected red. They could smell it as that blood coagulated and the fish died and began to stink. They could taste the truth as they had to dig for fresh water that wasn't contaminated. Yahweh is the great God over all gods. What's the result? You guys probably know the story. Pharaoh's magicians try to imitate this miracle, and they're successful. Now, what would have been really impressive is if they could have turned bloody water back to fresh, back to pure. But, of course, they couldn't have been that useful. They can't do that. Um, they are able to imitate this, though. And so the result of this is Pharaoh's heart grows hard. He says in verse 23, he did not take even this to heart. Even this. Even this devastating plague that fell upon the Nile River that was the source of their national prosperity and, and, and made life sustainable, it didn't phase him. His heart, as verse 22 says, remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He turned and went to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So plague number one does not seem to have any effect upon the Pharaoh. So plague number two rolls around. The second plague is frogs. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 details this for us. After seven days, the Nile River returns to normal, and Moses approaches Pharaoh again to make his demand. 
And this time he issues a warning. Let Israel go or else, or else. There's going to be a plague of frogs that will happen. He explains this in the first four verses. He says, I'll, in verse 2, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. Now, there's a difference here between this plague and the last. You think about it. Pharaoh was rich enough, powerful enough. He could have had anybody go and dig him up some clean water. So he sort of dodged that bullet. It wasn't his problem. But Pharaoh, or Moses rather says, this plague is going to fall on you in your house. These frogs will be in your bed and in your ovens. When you roll over at night, you'll feel them squishing underneath your side. When you walk to go to the bathroom, you'll step on them. When you go to eat your meal, they're going to be there on your plate. You won't be able to get away from these. They're going to be all over everything and everywhere. Um, they're going to be Pharaoh's problem, just like everybody else. But once again, the magicians copy this sign. They're able to produce frogs as well. Um, and so Pharaoh has the excuse he wants. He wants to ignore God's command, and so he does. But Pharaoh eventually gets tired of this. They're a nuisance. This is an irritation. It's kind of gross. And so he goes and asks Moses for relief and promises that he will let them go. He says in verse 8, it says, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh here has come to recognize that this is no natural phenomenon. And notice that he doesn't ask the magicians to make it go away. He knows they can't. He has to go to Moses and he says, I recognize this is the Lord's doing. Please ask him to take this away. He has to recognize, he's been forced to recognize God is doing this and so therefore only God can be relief. And when Pharaoh caves in and asks Moses for help, notice what Moses does. He tells Pharaoh to pick his time. In verse 9, he says, tell me when. He says, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Moses tells Pharaoh, pick your time. Tell me exactly when. And it will happen. And he does this to prove to Pharaoh, this is no coincidence. This is no natural phenomenon. God is sovereign over this plague, over the beginning and over the end. So Moses prays. God hears his prayer. The frogs die. They pile them up and they burn them. But as the stench fades away, so also does Pharaoh's intention of keeping his word. He backs out on his promise and he does not let the people go. So that means another plague is in order. Verse 16 through 19 of chapter 8 tells us about gnats. Now this third plague, which is the final one in, in sort of this first sequence of three, it comes with no warning. Verse 16 tells us that it just simply happens. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. These gnats were likely small biting insects. Some people even translate them mosquitoes. You can imagine what this would have been like. Super annoying. You know, there's certain times of the year I don't even want to sit in my backyard because you can't be out there without these mosquitoes swarming around your face, biting. And even two or three is enough to sort of make me want to go find some spray or a flamethrower or something to get rid of these annoying, biting insects. But they swarm all over the land. This is more than just your Kansas Midwestern backyard you know, mosquito problem. This is a plague of epic proportions. All the land of Egypt. And the striking of the dust here, the, the, symbol, the symbolism here is important. Remember that Moses had already struck the Nile, or Aaron had rather, as, as Moses' assistant. He had struck the Nile, it turned to blood. Now he strikes the dust, and it turns to gnats. God is showing that he's sovereign over all the earth, over the land and over the water. He's not confined just to one location or to one region or one sphere like many of the pagan deities were. No, it's all gods. And there's, this is symbolized here. And once again, the magicians try to duplicate the miracle, but this time they can't. 
they try to strike the dust and produce gnats, but nothing happens. And they are forced to acknowledge in verse 19 that this is the finger of God. They tap out. And at this point, they're done trying to imitate God's plagues. But even this does not change Pharaoh's mind. No, his heart grows hard, and he continues to refuse Moses and Aaron's demands. And so a second cycle of plagues is going to begin. Round two will include flies, disease, and death upon their livestock and boils. The flies begin in chapter 8, verse 20. And this second cycle now ramps up a notch in intensity. The first three are, are annoying for sure, and they're an inconvenience. But you can go dig for clean water and... You know, you can get rid of the frogs. They, they're not going to hurt you. It's just gross. The mosquitoes are annoying, but it's not going to really harm you. But the flies and the death on the livestock and the boils that they would experience, this is actually introducing a level of suffering. Things are ramping up. Like with the very first plague, once again, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh early in the morning as he goes out to the water. And they make their demand once again, let the people go. And they issue a warning. If you don't, the plagues will come. Now, if you've ever been bit by flies, maybe you've worked around horses or cattle, you know what horse flies are like. That's a totally different animal, literally, than mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are annoying, but biting flies can make you lose your mind. I mean, it's painful. Even one horse fly that's pestering you, if it's biting you over and over again, I don't know if you've experienced that or not, but it's awful. Now, consider swarms of them that are biting painful biting flies. It's a big deal. I mean, one fly can make you panicky, but a whole bunch of them would be too much to deal with. And with this announcement of the plague that that they give Pharaoh comes a new bit of information. They tell Pharaoh that the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews lived, would not experience this plague. So swarms of flies throughout the entire land, but none in Goshen. Now, why would this happen? Look at verse 22. It says, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. Pharaoh needed to know that Yahweh was the Lord in the midst of the earth, that he was not limited in his jurisdiction, that he's sovereign over the timing, the nature, and even the location of these plagues. Only God is able to guarantee that this swarm of flies will come into Egypt, but not one stray bug will wander into Goshen. But there's also another reason for this. Consider that the plagues are meant to be judgment. It's the judgment of God on a hard-hearted man, Pharaoh. It's the judgment of God upon a cruel people who had enslaved and afflicted the children of Israel. And God is perfectly just. There is no collateral damage, ever. God's wrath falls exactly where he commands it to fall. He's going to punish the wicked and rescue his people. Well, you know what happened. Pharaoh doesn't listen, so the plagues come. And then Pharaoh, in verse 25 through 27, tries to negotiate. Verse 25, he says to Moses and Aaron, Go, sacrifice to your God Within the land. He's like, you guys don't need to leave. Just do it here. Why do you have to travel three days away? Just do it here in Egypt. Moses said, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. He says, you won't like it if we do that here. He says, if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes... Will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, look at this, as he tells us. As he tells us. So he says, no, we're not going to leave. So what's going on here with Pharaoh? Well, notice this. Pharaoh wants relief, as you can imagine. But he is unwilling to submit to God's demands. Maybe you've seen this with your kids if you're a parent. Maybe some of us adults are honest enough to admit. Sometimes we don't like the consequences of our sin. That doesn't mean we're willing to give up our sin. That's where Pharaoh's at right now. And he sees God as someone to be negotiated with. He sees God as someone he can bargain with, but that's not how you deal with the Almighty God. This is a classic case of false repentance. Not only does Pharaoh try to negotiate, he makes another false promise but he refuses to let the people go after he gets what he wants. After Moses prays 
Once again, in verse 32, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And so another plague is in order. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we see death comes upon the livestock. This next plague comes with instructions. And it won't be the last one like this. God actually warns Pharaoh that every animal that is out in the fields is going to die, that a plague will fall upon those animals. And and unlike the other plagues, this time there's no staff involved. Moses doesn't stretch out his hand. Aaron doesn't do anything symbolic with the staff. This time, this plague is very clearly the work of God's hand. In verse 3, it says, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So anything that's home, anything that's in the pen, anything that's in the barn will be fine, but anything out in the field will die. That's unique. That's unique. That shows this is divine. God is in complete control of this. But it also gives them a chance. Any of the Egyptians who took God seriously would have done what? Bring those animals in. Don't leave them out in the fields. So God's giving opportunity for them to repent and to escape this judgment. Also, once again, there's a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Only the Egyptian livestock are in danger. Now, this plague would have had a devastating economic impact on the people of Egypt. Keep in mind, in, in that day, livestock was your portfolio. You didn't have a savings account. You didn't have a 401k. Um, you didn't have a bunch of money under your mattress in a pickle jar. You had livestock. That's how you, you saved up for your future. You had herds. These herds also provided milk and meat and hides. So it was an important resource for them. And it was even a form of currency. People traded in livestock. So for their animals out in the fields to die, they would have been decimated. This was a huge blow to their livelihood and to their economy. This is a lot different than just, you know, having to clean some frogs out of your cupboards in the morning before breakfast. There's now some real cost. This is devastating to the society there in Egypt. And not only that, it's yet another blow against the gods of Egypt. So it's wrecking their economy, but it's also wrecking their system of worship because livestock were so central to their life, so important to their life, it's no wonder many of the gods were associated with cattle. The sun god, Ra, was portrayed as being embodied in a sacred bull. The Egyptians even sometimes called themselves the cattle of Ra. The sacred bull, Apis, was worshipped at a large temple in Memphis, and they even had a whole cemetery, a graveyard for sacred bulls. And God wrecked their livestock decimated their herds, and no Egyptian deities could stop him. What a stunning statement to the cow worshipers in Egypt, that Yahweh is the one true God and there is no one like him. And it also makes it all the more tragic, doesn't it, that what does Israel do when they go to Mount Sinai? They create a golden calf and fall into idolatry to worship this creature that has no power. Tragic. Well, after this plague wipes out all the livestock of the field, Pharaoh hears that Israel's livestock are alive and well. He actually sends people to go and check. That really happened? Did they experience the same thing we did? He's not sure if he believes Moses and Aaron yet. He has plenty of reason to, but his heart is still hard. And even when he finds out that Israel's livestock are fine, it's only the Egyptian ones that have died, his heart, according to verse 7, is still hard. Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let people go. The next plague that falls will bring suffering not just upon the livestock, but also upon the people. Plague of boils is described for us in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 9. And this time Moses and Aaron are told to take two handfuls of soot or ash from a brick kiln and throw them into the air. And the result of this would be painful boils that come on the people and on their livestock. And this is symbolic, the soot or the ash Where did that come from? These are brick kilns. The people of Israel had been enslaved now for hundreds of years and had been forced to bake these bricks. They'd even had straw taken away so that it was harder for them to get their their quota in. And so there's a note of poetic justice here, isn't there? That the pain and suffering inflicted upon the people of Israel, that was evident by all the kilns and the ash and the soot, that pain was now being returned to the bodies of their oppressors. The boils cause deep pain and suffering 
to the people of Egypt. And this plague strikes man and beast. There's another mention of those magicians here. Remember them? Look in verse 11. It says, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Both literally and figuratively, they could not stand before the messengers of God. The most powerful and the best that Egypt has to offer, where are they? Well, they're not copying signs anymore. They're definitely not stopping anything. They've been utterly humiliated, and they go home. They can't even stand before Moses and Aaron. So now that they're all suffering this this rotting of the flesh, does Pharaoh relent? No. But look at what verse 12 says. It says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. At this point, after the sixth plague, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He'd had many chances. He'd been told. He'd been warned multiple times. He'd been given an abundant of evidence, and he'd been told explicitly what it was that God wanted him to do. But at every point now, he has refused. And what we see here, as we look at this autopsy of a hard heart, is we find a man that is past the point of no return. God has sealed him in his unbelief. God now is hardening his heart as an act of judgment on his rebellion and his hardness. This brings the second cycle of three plagues to a conclusion, and now we ramp up into the final stretch. Round three is hail, locusts, and darkness. The hail is a powerful message to Pharaoh. Look in in, um, chapter 9, starting in verse 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning. There's that pattern. It starts at the beginning of each cycle. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then notice what God says to this ruler. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God says, listen, Pharaoh, I could have killed you already. I could have ended you and your people, but I haven't. It's not because you're so strong to endure my wrath. It's because I have a purpose for you. I'm going to make an example of you so that everyone will know my power, and my glory, and so that you may know who it is that you have defied. And so hail is the catastrophe that comes in this seventh plague, and it's accompanied by fire. Now, this would have been terrifying to the people. You see, rainstorms, thunderstorms would have been highly unusual for that region. The Nile Delta gets maybe 10 inches of rain per year. The upper Egypt gets only around one inch per year. That's why the Nile River is so important. They didn't have rain. They needed flooding and irrigation. So a hailstorm, a powerful hailstorm would have been highly unusual, and this one is deadly. But amazingly, this announcement early in the morning, it comes with an offer of escape. Look in verse 18. He says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This is God's mercy to these people. As As harsh as this judgment may seem, he's warning them and giving them an opportunity. And Pharaoh's heart is hard. He doesn't listen. And some of his servants don't listen. But some of them did fear the Lord. Some of them took this message to heart. And they hurriedly brought in their livestock and their servants to escape the coming disaster. Some of those people were likely the ones who made up this mixed multitude that later would join in with the children of Israel and leave Egypt to go worship this God and to to go to the land that he had promised. So this plague brings major devastation and death, not just to livestock, but also to people and also to their crops. I mean, this heavy hail falling 
just wrecked everything. And it does get Pharaoh's attention because in verse 27, he seems to make a confession. Verse 27, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He confesses. But you know what? Moses doesn't take him very seriously. He's cried wolf one too many times. Verse 30, Moses says, As for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. This is another false confession. This is shallow repentance. This is momentarily wanting to be free of the consequences of his rebellion, but not actually having any interest at all at bowing his knee to the one true God. He's just tired of the consequences. And Moses was right, because as soon as everything goes away, what happens? Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. This is no true confession or repentance. And so next comes the locusts. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 20. The hail would have done major damage to their crops, but an invasion of locusts would have literally cleaned up any remaining shred of plant life that was left over. Locust swarms were feared because there's nothing you can do to stop them. These little insects are pervasive and relentless. They eat voraciously and they leave nothing green in their wake. They eat multiple times their body weight every day. And the reason this this would have been so scary, think about this, is that on the heels of any locust invasion, if you had a plague of locusts, what would have happened after that? I mean, the bugs move through after a day or two. But after that comes famine. And famine was a horrifying experience. No green stuff left means there's no crops. Yes, no grain, no, no food for them. But it also means no grazing for your livestock. So not only do you lose the harvest, you lose another source of food and milk. So any of the herds that would have survived the disease and the hail, any animals that were left now would have faced starvation. And this would have brought a season of slow suffering upon everyone. Moses and Aaron threatened Pharaoh with this kind of a plague. Locusts ratcheting things up to that level. The servants of Pharaoh, who formerly were hard-hearted like him, they now plead with Pharaoh to relent. Verse 7, they say to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? They say, how long? It's interesting, this echoes what what God has said through Moses to Pharaoh just a few verses before this. In verse, verse, uh, let's see, where is it? Verse three, Moses and Aaron had gone into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Then his servants are saying it. How long, Pharaoh, are you going to wait until we're all dead? There's going to be nothing left. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Pharaoh's in a position where he has to sort of settle the troops and keep the peace. So he brings Moses and Aaron back in to negotiate. And I want you to notice what happens here in verses 8 through 11. Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that's what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Here's what's amazing here. Pharaoh is trying to regulate worship. Claiming that, oh, you're certainly free to worship God as long as you abide by the limitations that I impose. Pharaoh wants to regulate worship. And he won't be the last ruler to do so. But notice Moses' response in verse 9. Moses said, we will go with our young and our old We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Moses doesn't say, we want to go with our wives and our children and our flocks. He doesn't say, listen, 
we, we really should be able to go with our wives and our, our children and our flocks. He says, no, we will go. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Moses has been emboldened, hasn't he, by this awesome display of God's power. I mean, this guy was stuttering and faltering and hesitating and pessimistic at the beginning, and now he's talking directly to Pharaoh and saying, you're not in a position to tell us what we can and can't do. Here is what we're going to do. He's been emboldened, and he knows that they must not fail to worship God, not in the way that that Pharaoh prescribes. No, they must worship God in the way that God has said they must worship. And Pharaoh is in no position to regulate worship. So Pharaoh gets mad. He says, basically, God help you if you ever try to do this. And so the locusts come, verses 14 through 17. It's interesting, the Egyptian god Senehem supposedly protected Egypt from pests like locusts. But of course, he's nowhere to be found. He's proven to be nothing. But it's too late for Pharaoh Even though the plague comes, and even though God's word is fulfilled, and even though everything Moses has said will happen, happens exactly as predicted, God hardens Pharaoh's heart once again. It's too late for him. It's too late for Pharaoh to repent. And God's not done with Pharaoh. He's going to make an example out of him. This final sequence, this final plague in this third sequence is the plague of darkness, verses 21 through 29. Verse 21 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Without warning, without any announcement, God sends darkness on the land for three days. And this is not just some eclipse. This is not just some sandstorm that made eerie lighting and and made things dark. No, this is a darkness, verse 21 says, a darkness you can feel. Maybe some of you have been in a cave before. You know this kind of darkness. Where you're so far underground that there's not a shred of light. It's disorienting. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You lose all sense of of distance and space. You start wondering which way is up, which way is down. And your natural instinct is to not move because you're so disoriented. That's what happened to all the people in the land of Egypt. They felt it. And all of life shut down except for life in Goshen. The people of Israel had light. Again, this is not only a display of God's power over the created world, it's also an assault on Egyptian deities. Ra was the sun god. And Egyptian mythology imagined that this deity would go beneath the earth into the underworld each night when the sun set. And there he would battle with Apophis, this god of chaos. And he would emerge victorious with the sunrise, reborn with each day. But three days of darkness signaled that Ra was not victorious over chaos. And his daily cycle had been canceled. Because God says there's going to be darkness. Yahweh is the Lord of water. He's the Lord of the earth. And he's the Lord of the heavens. And everything in between, it's all his. He's sovereign over the living and the realm of the dead. God governs it all. Once again, Pharaoh bargains with Moses. And once again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He responds to Moses' refusal of his terms with anger in verses 28 and 29. Pharaoh says to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Moses says, if you don't want to ever see me, fine, have it your way. You'll get exactly what you asked for. So blood, frogs, gnats, Flies, diseased cattle, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. The nation of Egypt has been devastated. Their economy devastated. Their herds devastated. Their health devastated. Their land devastated. And the heart of Pharaoh has only grown harder. So what's the point of all this? What's the point? Well, six times in this narrative, God has made it clear. He does these things so that all will know that he is the Lord. This is God's self-revelation. This is God proving and declaring with no one able to protest or explain otherwise that he alone is God and that there is no limit to his power or his sovereignty. 
This is his driving purpose in both judgment and in salvation. This is why God does what he does. He performs mighty wonders to make himself known. That's what this story is about. God performs mighty wonders to make himself known. So here's the question that leads us into these three principles I promised we would get to. What is it that we come to know about this God through these mighty wonders? Who is the God of the plagues? Three truths emerge. There's more we could say, but I want to pull out three. The first is already evident. We won't belabor the point. But God performs mighty wonders, first of all, as proof of his power. He performs mighty wonders as proof of his power. And Israel needed to know his power. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 7. Remember what God had said to Moses in this speech of assurance that he gave this fearful man. Chapter 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Listen, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Israel was watching this. And they would sing of God's mighty power. They would sing of his strength. They would sing of his defeat of his enemies as they stood on the far shore of the Red Sea. So Israel needed to see this power. But Egypt also needed to see. You see, Pharaoh had scoffed. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But over the course of these plagues, he's forced to confess his sin, to admit his defeat, and to ask God for help. So his heart may still be hard, but he's no longer ignorant. He now knows who the Lord is. The magicians have been forced to admit, this is the finger of God. The servants of Pharaoh have begged Pharaoh to listen. Please let these people go. There's going to be nothing left. And even some of the people of Egypt have learned. They've started hiding their animals and doing whatever it is that this man Moses says needs to happen because they now know who the Lord is. It's not just Egypt that needs to know. The future generations need to know. God's doing something not just for these people in this time. God is making a statement that is meant to ripple throughout the generations. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. The Lord had said to Moses, this is with the plague of locusts, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, listen, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, every generation needs to know the power of God. Friends, this story is for us. And every generation of Israel would know this power. They would celebrate God's great deliverance in the Passover. They would sing about it in the Psalms, and especially in the Song of Moses. This event would permanently shape their view of God. Every generation And it would shape their national identity. Forever they would know him as the God who brought them out of Egypt. And his triumph over all the false gods of Egypt would be a perpetual reminder to them and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren that worshiping idols is foolish. Their power is nothing. Don't you know what happened in Egypt? Every generation needed to know this power. God performs mighty wonders as proof of his power. And listen, if we don't know the power of God, we don't know God. You don't know who he is if you don't know how powerful he is. If you underestimate him, if you minimize him, then you have the wrong idea in your head of who this God is. So God performs mighty wonders as proof of his power. But secondly, God performs mighty wonders as fulfillment of his promise. Back in Genesis, God had said this to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 15, God says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. When God sends the plagues upon Egypt, he's showing himself to be faithful. He says, I am keeping the promises that I made. He has made them a great nation. There's a multitude there in Egypt. Now God is going to bring them out of Egypt and give them the land that he promised them. He's going to bless them and bless the whole world 
through them. And not only does this covenant promise include blessing and land for the people of Israel, but remember, it also includes judgment, doesn't it? God says, whoever blesses you, I'll bless them, but whoever dishonors you, I will curse. I will curse them. God is judging a nation that has treated God's people with contempt. And he's keeping his promise to Abraham. This is why when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he echoed those Abrahamic promises. This is why God's speech of reassurance to Moses in chapter 6 is saturated with covenant language. God performs mighty wonders, these miracles, these plagues, as a fulfillment of his promise. To know God as he is, is to recognize that he is perfectly faithful. He sovereignly brings about all that he promises. He always has and he always will. So God performs mighty wonders as proof of his power, as fulfillment of his promise. And then finally, God performs mighty wonders as a preview of the final judgment. And this is where it gets very, very personal for us. As we read the rest of scripture, we come to find out that there is something worse than the plagues that is coming. Something far worse than water turning to blood, hail, fire, dead livestock, boils, flies, darkness. The day of the Lord is described in Scripture with language that surpasses the powerful judgments in Egypt. And if the plagues had never happened, if these judgments had never fallen on the Egyptians, you and I might be tempted to think that a worldwide time of tribulation and judgment and wrath is far-fetched. But if God can sovereignly judge the nation of Egypt, then he can sovereignly judge the world. And if they could not stand against God in his wrath, then neither can anyone else today. This comes as a warning to those who may have a hard heart. If you, like Pharaoh, have repeatedly refused God's call to repentance, and if you think you can negotiate terms with him, if you think you are immune somehow to his judgments, then here's the warning. You may eventually reach the point of no return where your heart becomes so hard that God says, fine, be that way. You made your bed, now you can lie in it. God may, in his judgment, give you over to your own stubbornness and therefore harden your heart. The profile of Pharaoh in this story should serve as a warning to us not to persist in rebellion against God because there's something worse than the plagues that are coming. There is a day of wrath that has been appointed. But for those who do not have a hard heart, those who have confessed their sin honestly and have truly and genuinely repented before the Lord, the good news for us today is that this judgment that is coming upon all the world will not fall upon us. It will not fall upon us. Just as the children of Israel found shelter in the land of Goshen, those who dwell in the shadow of the cross are saved from the wrath of God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is at war with Pharaoh and with the gods of Egypt, and he is at war with all sinners who persist in rebellion against him. But if you repent of your sin, there is no more war. We have reconciliation with God. The hostility is ended. The enmity is taken away. And we have peace with God. He relates to us no longer as his enemies, but as his children. That's what happens for those who know Christ. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we do to escape that wrath? What do we do to make sure that that we somehow can can dodge this bullet? Well, what did Israel do in the book of Exodus? Really nothing. They just sat at home in Goshen, and God did everything. It was by God's power that they were spared. What do we do to escape the wrath of God? We simply cling to Christ. We do nothing. There's no actions we perform. There's no good works we have to do. There's no hoops we jump through. We simply hunker down next to the cross and say, Jesus, we're with you. And the wrath that falls upon sin is absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And everyone who's with Jesus, everyone who's united with him by faith, is spared from this judgment. God's judgment upon Egypt 
brought deliverance for the people of Israel. Listen, God's judgment upon his son brings salvation for us, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. This is the gospel. And in order to receive it, all we do is repent of our sin and trust in Christ. There's not all these good works. It's simply received by faith. Faith is admitting I can't do anything. Faith is admitting you can do everything. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. So the final judgment that is to come should bring fear to those with a hard heart, but those who have a new heart, those who have been softened by God's grace, those who are repentant and trusting in Christ, we stand in the grace of God, safe, just like in Goshen, and we need not fear the wrath to come. We are free to rejoice in the powerful salvation that has been accomplished for us through God's amazing acts of judgment in the grace of of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. So I, I must plead with you today, if you have a hard heart like Pharaoh, you need to see how his story ends. Don't follow in his footsteps. And if you fear the judgment of God, you need to know that salvation is found in belonging to him. His people are spared. And we enter into his family through faith in Christ. By trusting in the gospel, we're adopted in. and You can become right with God. God performs mighty wonders to make himself known. He proves his power. He keeps his promises. And he also gives us a preview of the final judgment. So let me ask you, do you know God like this? Do you know him to be God as he is? If so, let's worship him and let's proclaim to all the world so that they too may know the greatness of our God. Please join me as we pray. Lord, there's so much in this text that we couldn't even get to, and it feels like a stretch to try to cover it all. But one thing is clear. There's no one like you. God of power who keeps his promises, who judges but who also saves. God, our greatest need is to know you. and Your greatest purpose is to make yourself known. So, Lord, do your work in our hearts today for any who may be hard-hearted, indifferent, uninterested, who make excuses, I pray that today their defenses would be shattered, that they would humble themselves before you and bow their knee before you as the one true God. Lord, we confess today that salvation and rescue from wrath to come is only found in Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you hung on the cross and absorbed the wrath that we deserve so that we could be reconciled with God. Lord, accomplish great and mighty works among us today. In the saving of souls, you're able to take hearts and change them and make them new. We pray you would do so and that you would fill the mouths of your children with songs of praise that we would shout out to the world your greatness and your glory, your power and your wrath, your mercy and your grace. Lord, be glorified in and through this church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.